So Lent is known as a penitential season. And uh, right at the heart of that word penitential is the notion of repent. And when we think of repent, we can think of introspection. We can think about um, how bad we sometimes see ourselves, how fearful we might be about how God might see us. And the whole notion can get a bit morose. So why is it that the church placed in its calendar this annual sort of checkup? Um, and what's the context in which we do this? What's the overall feel and vibe in which we enter into these Lenten practices? And so this morning we read the story first in um, uh, Genesis about Abraham, this famous father of Israel, who so on the one hand you think Abraham, you know, the, the seed from which all this has come. And on the other hand, if you know his story, you know that he was a flawed person, that he had doubts and he had fears. And sometimes those doubts and fears caused him to actually not tell the truth in, in order to somehow get by with whatever situation was before him. So as we pick up the story this morning in Genesis, Abraham's been following God the best he knows how. But then there comes this moment when full of doubt and anxiety, he gets honest with God saying, basically, hey, wait a minute, I've got a question here. How's this all gonna work out? How, like, how's this land gonna become mine that does not seem doable? And I don't have a son, and I'm old now, and it looks like that somebody else is gonna be my heir, and that doesn't make any sense, God, for the story that you've been telling me. Now, here's what's important. This is not whining, uh, this is not whining about, you know, the house I live in or I wish I had a better job or something like that. And those things are all important, but I'm saying that's not what's happening here. This is not that kind of whining. These are really deep, profound questions that arise out of a relationship and a journey. Two people relating to each other on a journey. And these questions for Abraham, they actually come out of his faith a faith that takes serious God's calling, God's presence with him, God's power, God's capacity and willingness to act, right? Like, why would you bring these things up to God if you didn't think he had both the capacity and the willingness to act on your behalf? So maybe you're taking that little Lenten card we've given you the last couple of weeks, and maybe you're actually trying this Lent to pay attention to what's real about you and the most inner parts of your life. So what do you do when you find a little spot of darkness? Who has the capacity and the willingness to act with you for your good? And it's that sort of essential faith out of which Abraham is raising these questions. There seems to be this kind of inner knowing in him that this God who the text tells us committed himself to Abraham as this walking fire pot would come through for him. Because that little covenantal scene that we read this morning, it, it, what it essentially says is, I will keep my obligations to this covenant, and if I don't, then what happened to those animal pieces may happen to me, meaning I'd be torn in two. And so Abraham has this sense, this little knowing, that the God who committed to him as that walking fire pot would come through for him, that God would meet his obligations in this relationship, 
in Abraham's calling and on this journey that they were going to be in. And this is what David in, in our psalm tells us this morning. If you want to look at your, your liturgy and look at the psalm this morning, that, that this alerts us to the notion that Lent happens in the shelter of this relationship with God and that Lent happens in the, the vibe of this God who has committed himself to us. Um, several times in recent weeks, we've you know, mentioned that Old Testament word, hesed. The long-suffering, patient, committed, grace-filled love of God to us that never goes away. And that's the essential vibe or ethos in which we do Lent. So the psalmist tells us that God gives us hope when we fear there's no safety nets under our weakness and flaws. Have you ever had that feeling? They're like, if I ever really deeply understand who I am and what makes me move and tick in ways that I don't like, that I'm afraid that that's like a black hole. And there's, there's no real safety nets underneath there, under my weaknesses and flaws. Or when I experience dark nights or weeks or months of the soul, how's this going to turn out? Or how do we understand doing life under the shelter of God when we just think of the terrible calamities of this world that make absolutely no sense? I'm just a businessman actually getting towards the end of my productive life. And I'm just going to work early because that's who I am. I, I get up and I go to work early and I work hard and i just doing what I do Monday through Friday every week, sitting in an intersection in Santa Ana. And suddenly this kid runs at my car and demands the keys and tells me to get out and walk over to the corner and stand on the curb. And I do. And I'm shot with a shotgun three times in the back. Like, how does this work? How, how in any way do we understand a life happening under the shelter of God? And so David says, the Lord is the light of my life and he is my salvation. He's the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I fear? Now, we don't have time to get into a long lesson this morning on David, but if you can just call to mind the life of David, he certainly had major ups and downs and fights and big issues in his life. But when he thinks about it, he says, in the day of trouble, God will keep me safe in his dwelling, in the shelter of his sacred tent. So Abraham, because of God's presence, gets a feel for this because God answers him and says, look, you know, don't worry, this is going to happen. And hearing God's reply, Abraham replies to the Lord that he believes. And the text says that Abraham believes and that God credited to him as righteousness. Well, what is it that Abraham believed? Do you think he took a little pop quiz and, and wrote a nice paragraph on divine ontology? Like, you know, do you think he was asked for a term paper to adequately explain the person of God? What is it that he actually believed that God looked at? Sort of like Jesus with the centurion saying, I've never seen anybody in Israel with faith like this. So what is it that God saw? 
that he counted to Abraham as righteousness. What he saw was not doctrinal or theological precision, as important as those things are. What he saw was a deep and profound trust. See, because the issue of old age and son and land, those are deeply personal things. Those aren't things that can be reduced to mere doctrinal precision. Abraham's asking very important, deep, personal questions. I don't get this, and I don't get this means I don't see how this can possibly happen. Look at my age. Look at this error. There's no land that I can see here that I can in any way say is for me and my descendants. And so what God sees is trust. Personal trust. I trust that you will do this. Believe does not mean primarily that which we do with our brains or cognition. It's a commitment. Like lots of us in this room are old enough to remember the Amplified Bible, right? And remember, whatever it would, you would have the word believe, then you'd have this little parenthetical thought. Trust in, rely on, and cling to. That's what... God saw and credited to Abraham as righteousness. Well, what's righteousness? The New Testament word, the kaiosune, means something like that which is truly good. Um, it, you might think of it as like a plumb line, that which is truly in alignment, so that when you get to um, John 6, uh, in, well, in 5 and 6, Jesus says something like this several times, but let me just read you this one passage where in John 6, Jesus says, anyone who sees the Son, now try to listen to this carefully, anyone who sees the Son and trusts who he is and what he does, so here's what Jesus is, this is what he's saying, this is what he's doing, and then he says, anyone who sees that and then aligns their life with him will enter the real and eternal life. And that's what God sees. God's up to something. He and Abraham are on a journey. Abraham gets crosswise with it. He doesn't get it. It doesn't seem like it's going to work. He is, you know, completely lacking faith. But God answers him, and God sees Abraham's heart and life coming into alignment again with this relationship, this calling, this journey they're on, and God says, that's truly good. That's really what I'm after with all of humanity. It's what I was after with Adam and Eve. Here's what I'm doing. He said to them, come rule and reign with me. Come be my cooperative friends and, and work with me. And they got crosswise with it. And when you get crosswise with something, if we could take the O in the word known, and let's say that's like a bullseye, and that's where God's going. And when we get out of alignment with that one way or the other, that's the New Testament word for, the main New Testament word for sin, hamartia. It means to miss the mark. So when our lives get out of alignment with that, we're sinning, we're missing the mark. And the New Testament notion, and this is why we do Lent, the way you fix that is you repent. You consider the direction of your life. You see the gap, and you repent, and you align yourself. And this is why a, a great way for you to think of the, quote, righteousness that we're shooting for in Lent is not of first importance religious. It certainly has nothing to do with being Anglican 
or Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox or Presbyterian. It has nothing to do with any of that as a first order. As a first order, it's just like a yearly checkup that produces in us sort of daily, hopefully moment-by-moment checkups where we notice the alignment of our lives. Well, how do we do this? And our reading from Philippians this morning gives us a little bit of a grasp about how to align ourselves. So in this Pauline passage, there's an exhortation to imitation, to being transformed, and to standing firm, if you want to look there in your liturgy. Now, I want to kind of place before your mind here a really big and important thought. So I want you to picture a discipleship program. Let's say you're starting a discipleship program and maybe you're going to lead it. So just picture yourself, even if you would never do this, trying to design a discipleship process. Now imagine yourself doing that without a Bible. How would you do a discipleship program without a Bible? I mean, for most of us, discipleship programs meant, you know, read a passage and then fill in a blank. You know, for God so loved the blank, you know, that he gave his only son, right? And so you fill in the blank and you read another passage and you fill in the blank. Well, I want you to stop and think about this. The reason there's a call in this passage for imitation is because the gospels at this point were not in circulation. No one had Bibles the way we think of Bibles. And furthermore, in this day, no one would have ever reduced learning to cognition. There's a reason that Paul calls for imitation. It's a Greek word, mimeo, where we get the word mimic. And so what Paul has in mind here, and all of his culture would have understood, that the kind of learning that's called for in the gospel, the kind of learning that's called for when Abraham walks with God, or David's trying to walk with God and do his life with him, is not primarily cognitive. That this is primarily personal and embodied. And embodied spiritual kinds of learning require placing yourself under the tutelage of somebody who's where you want to be. Other kinds of learning can be reduced to facts and concepts and data. But the kind of learning that we're after here, being followers of Jesus, is not the kind of learning that happens that way. Because Jesus, and this is kind of the underlying thought of Paul, you know, dealing with these Roman citizens, these Gentiles, that he's essentially saying, look, Jesus is not just another intellectual or moral hero. You can't place him in the same category as Socrates or Aristotle or Plato. That what what differentiates Jesus from all of them and becomes the differentiating differentiating issue in our life is Jesus hung on the cross and rose again from the dead. Plato can't touch that. Socrates or Aristotle or Cicero or Seneca, Jesus' predecessors or his contemporaries who are the philosophers of the day can't touch it. It's not even close. And that's the kind of imitation that Paul's calling for here, that Jesus, Philippians 2 said, emptied himself. He went to the cross. Paul said, I counted all of my Jewish privilege as rubbish. And Paul simply saying, no other religious leader is like this. And by the way, none of them rose from the dead. But Paul says, some live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And then note what he says. 
that essentially what he sees in them is that they're following their appetites and their desires. So instead of the kind of self-denial that you see in Jesus and the self-denial that you see in Paul, these enemies of the cross, they live according to their desires or their appetites. And here's why, and I don't have time to say more about this, but just know this, that human beings are fundamentally desiring beings. And that is why cognitive, merely cognitive approaches to discipleship they end up becoming moralistic because we never actually put on the table our real desires out of fear that if God knew who I really am and what it is I really desire, that something might go wrong here. But unless your wanter, not your fake religious wanter, but unless your real wanter, your real desires are on the table, there's no real discipleship happening. And again, what Lent does is help us just notice those kinds of things. And in our culture today, this is especially important. Why follow Jesus? I mean, why not Buddha? Or Confucius? Or Mohammed or Gandhi? Why not? Why follow Jesus? Because see, what happens if you place all those religious leaders on an even plane, and, and you say... Um, actually, I'm choosing for Jesus. I'm gonna be a follower of Jesus. Immediately in our culture, then that gap makes you a hater. Why you hate non-Gandhi? Why you hate non-Buddha? It's immediately what happens in our culture today. And if we don't learn a culturally relevant way to say, I, winsome, relevant way to say, I'm a follower of Jesus, and here's why, they can't touch him. It's not close. Jesus has the best information possible on the most important aspects of what it means to be human in the image of God. They can't touch that. Aristotle was brilliant. Plato's crazy smart. Gandhi was an amazingly lovely man. So we don't actually have to put them down. We can actually talk about all their lovely parts. But I am a follower of Jesus. And then it requires um, that kind of choice because... Here is one of, if not the biggest choice any human being can ever make and will ever make. From whom are you learning to do life? Who's your teacher? Who's your master? From whom are you learning to do life? And most people never even get around to asking the question, much less answering it. They have this deep default position because everybody's learning to do life from somebody. My mom, my dad, a rock star, a philosopher, a politician, you know, a teacher. Everybody has an imagination that's being shaped by someone, whether they know it or not. There's no such thing as a rebel. Even rebels learn to be rebels from another rebel. And so from whom are we learning to do life is this deep fundamental question that, that Lent helps us with. Now, the last thing we wanna say about this whole business of doing Lent under the loving shelter of God comes out of our gospel passage this morning where we hear these famous words of Jesus. Oh, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. And what this alerts us to as we do our Lenten practices that Jesus wanted to draw and embrace and include sinners, people like us, those who are cast out and beaten down. And this is the reality in which we both do life and do Lent. 
In Jesus' day, fire was terrifying because there were no fire departments. If a fire started, it could burn for weeks. And so fire was both obviously this very productive, necessary thing, but also terrifying. And what they noticed in Jesus' day, and you can talk to a farmer even today who will tell you the same thing, that when there would be a sort of a, a barnyard kind of fire or a fire that involved wild, wildlife, they would often go into a barn-like area and, you know, kicking away the burned-out ashes, find a hen completely scorched and burned and dead. And under her wing, these little live chicks. As this hen had given her life to protect these little chicks. And this is what Luke wants us to know about Jesus in general. And it's in our Lenten readings because the church wants us to know that that is how we do Lent under the holy shelter, as David said. And so Jesus' march to Jerusalem, you know, he says to, you know, we tell that fox that I don't have time to mess around with him. I'm preaching the kingdom of God and I'm healing the sick and driving out demons. And, and in the third day, you know, I got this other work to do. I'm gonna die and raise again from the dead. And so Luke wants us to know that Jesus' march to Jerusalem is to be that hen to die on our behalf, to protect us from the rightful judgment that our sins and rebellion deserve, and to assure us in Lent that as you notice things about yourself that you don't like, as you notice things about yourself that you're quite sure God doesn't like, that all happens under the wings, this holy shelter and tent that David talks about. So if David were here this morning, and maybe helping us understand Lent and thinking of this shelter of God's holy tent, maybe he would say to us this morning, as the psalmist said, remain confident in this. You will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Amen.